you know, like with minimal debt and below book value, like what's the what's the downside here? It's probably pretty minimal. I, I love seeing the way your eyes light up when you say things like minimal debt. Like you, you, you get so... just gets fired up, man. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Coming to you from the darkness, player. Man, it's kind of creepy over there. It really is like Blair Witch Project. <laughs> you okay? Are you and the family safe? Blink twice if you're in trouble. <laughs> Oh, how are you doing? How are you living? Like, dude, I had a burrito the other day with no extras, and it was like $14. And it was one of those to-go <laughs> burritos. I was like, I'm not buying burritos anymore. Like, I'm just not. So until the pipes are whatever, all those core ingredients come down, no more burritos for me. Like, that's going to happen. We're going to stop buying stuff. <laughs> well, um, I want to kick off and save the people some money. Actually, make the people some money. Uh, our listeners oh, deserve uh-oh. it. So get this, Doogles. This is how we got to say it, I think. I've been working on this all week. I hope it goes well. Uh, we don't give investment advice on the show, but we do give research recommendations. And I think this is one of the most like no-brainer research recommendations I can possibly give. So there are government-backed I-series bonds that are tied to inflation. And because the CPI went crazy as we've talked about on the show the last couple months. Currently, you can make 7.12% return uh, guaranteed for at least the six, the next six months with government bonds. And so we had a listener mail from John a month or two ago about what to do with that cash in kind of his emergency fund that he's uh, sitting on. Until recently, I don't think there was a great option where you can make more than a percent. Um, I think this is a really solid option. And I know you've looked into it as well. And it's worth walking through some of the mechanics so folks understand how these uh, Series I bonds work. So as Skippy mentioned, every six months, the inflation rate on the bond or the rate on the bonds is kind of reset, restated. And so the way that they work is they, there are two parts to the bond, There's which is in total called the composite rate. There's like the fixed rate and then they add on the sh- inflation rate. So the fixed rate on the bond is zero yeah. right now. Yeah. And then it's adding on 7.12%. And so and so it sets in November and then uh, May, right, is when it when it resets. I think it and might so be April, but yeah. April, yeah, it, somewhere yeah. around there. Um, and so basically, yeah, if you buy now, you have the 7.12% until it resets again, and they'll, they'll state what the new rate is. Uh, you have to hold them for at least a year. And if you hold it for less than five years, you have to pay back the last three months of interest. But 7% exactly. right now is... So a max investment of 10 grand, um, although it looks like you can do, if you own a small business, you can do 10 grand for the small business and then 10 grand personally. And then, you know, 10 grand during your wife's name, if you really wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. It also has some weird things. This is according to a journalist with the Wall Street Journal. I haven't fact just checked this, but I assume it's good. So uh, because it's government stuff, like if you... Uh, put your money in on November 29th, they'll still pay you a full month worth of interest. There's like gimmicks like that, which mm. just make me laugh. I think it's really solid. If you set up an account, you go to treasurydirect.gov, and this link is on the Twitter already at Skippy Dougals. But 
<laughs> you'll you'll be cursing the government because they're going to give you some uh, crazy account number and then they're going to make you type in your password with like some antiquated technology to try and uh, get around phishing attacks. It's it's just government through and through. It's not nearly as slick as your Robinhood account, but it might be worth the trouble to get um, 7% risk free for at least six months. Worth researching for sure and thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. 7% seven, 7 right now sitting in something safe guaranteed for six months is, well, unprecedented. I'm just keep talking exactly. about unprecedented things today. <laughs> well, so th they're saying this is the second highest rate ever. In a way, that sucks because it means your purchasing power is being eroded with inflation. But we've talked about on the show how there's no good place to put your cash. And I'm in, I'm holding a little more cash right now than I typically would because I have some uncertainty with what might happen in 2022. So perfect solution for me. Uh, put 10 grand in there. Also, you can put 10 grand in each calendar year if I read it correctly. Yeah, so if you wanted to put 20 grand in, put 10 grand in before this year wraps up and uh, 10 grand in uh, start of 2022 and you can be pulling some a pretty decent return uh, without worrying about the crazy bubble that might be the US stock market. I want to I want to jump over Tesla and I want to uh, throw some quizzes your way, Dougals. So if you add up I got a count here. One, two, three, four, five, six. Let's call it, uh, this, we're going to call this Tesla versus the world. And so it's basically statistics on Tesla versus the next 12 largest automotive manufacturers in the world. So these are things like Toyota, Volkswagen, uh, GM, BMW, Ford, Honda, Ferrari. You get the picture, right? Yep. Do you know what the current market cap of Tesla is, Douglas? It's about one and a half trillion, I think. Yeah. I mean, this was earlier this week. It was 1.36 or so. Do you know the combined market cap of all those other automotive manufacturers? I have no idea, but because this is easy math, I'm going to say half a trillion. Like 950 billion. Um, okay. oh. so, so Tesla's market cap is worth all. <laughs> it's more. <laughs> it's greater than all the manufacturers. If you look at car sales, you're going to see how drastic that is. Um, now, let's talk, you know, I'm a free cash flow guy. Let's talk about Tesla's free cash flow versus those same manufacturers. Uh, I'm going to say Tesla has $10 billion in free cash flow. Yeah, so it's uh, like three or four. Um, billion? It, yeah, three or four billion. <laughs> I, I was... <laughs> you thought I said three or four dollars? No, no, no. I was, I was thinking that my ten billion was actually an undershot. No, no, no. no. Tesla three has four, three four. to four billion dollars in free cash flow and is worth one point five trillion dollars. Okay. One point three six is, trillion. What is all the? Um, what's the aggregate of all those other twelve manufacturers? All right. So you said there are about nine hundred billion dollars in market market cap. cap. All right. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say roughly about that same number. Uh, maybe somewhere like. 500 billion. Uh, no, it's like if you're doing the free cash flow to price, it'd be about about 10 ish. It really, you have some negative cash flow, um, large automotive okay. manufacturers yeah, right true. now. That's true. Like Toyota and GM, but call it roughly 70 billion. So you get $70 billion in free cash flow. Okay. For a market cap of, we're going to call it 950 billion. Or you get like 4 billion in free cash flow for a market cap of 1.6 trillion. 
this feeds into an analyst breakdown that I saw this week that estimates <laughs> that Tesla is overvalued by a trillion dollars right now. Isn't that insane? My response is, what's a trillion dollars between friends, especially people yeah. that like Elon Musk? Well, I mean, the the sentiment that's out in the market right now is basically, well, this is not everywhere, right? But on the uh, the Tesla files is like the valuation measures of Tesla are irrelevant. I mean, that, that's kind of the way that, right? Like the folks are looking at it, meaning that I'm not saying I'm saying this, but like people are saying that if you look at other automobile ma manufacturers, like Tesla is not a car company. Tesla is a, it's a computer company or Tesla is a battery company or Tesla is a, yeah, and um, they'll argue that they'll argue that um, they're going to make significantly more profit margins and everything else. Yeah, yeah. which this is ridiculous. It's fine. This I mean, is ridiculous. But, all right, let's just do a few more stats for you. R and D spending. So uh, this is really capex plus R and D of the twelve other manufacturers versus Tesla. I I have no idea. Just give me give me the figures here. I mean, like a hundred and eighty billion to. I'm looking at a graph here, so I don't have the exact number, 7 billion. The stats go on. Do you know that Tesla is valued at roughly two times Berkshire Hathaway right now? And do you know that Berkshire Hathaway <laughs> makes more profit than Tesla has in sales? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll stop because I think you get the point. At this, but there's like entire threats. I mean, this just goes on and on and on. Oh. And so shout out to uh, Drew Dixon on that. He's where I got the initial graphs of the comparison between the auto, auto manufacturers. And then I actually built the free cash flow one just because I wanted to see. It's out of this world crazy. I don't short stocks, but man, I wish I could short <laughs> Tesla. And also, man, I wish I could short the Kathy Wood stuff too. How come that ET? Where is Sark? Where is yeah. Sark? I looked again this week. I was like, I need, I just need to scratch an itch. I just need to put 10 bucks <laughs> in it. And it's not out there yet. Thank you. Thank you for walking through that. It's like, seeing that or hearing it, I guess here, it's yeah. like, it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. You so, know who um, else passed uh, Berkshire this week? Who? NVIDIA. <laughs> oh, gosh. Are we on it? Hold on. Before we switch to your NVIDIA rant and tell me that Intel is stupid, let me just say, uh volkswagen looks pretty interesting so uh, more you know research why? advice why because it, they're when, fraudsters yes <laughs> <laughs> i mean but that is like they got crushed after all that so i'm, I'm just assuming it hasn't come back since uh it since hasn't they... come back and this is from memory gosh i think price to free cash flow of volkswagen is like three to five or something and it was like 0.6 of book value. I mean, those uh, ratios are not, that's not doing an analysis of the stock. That's not reading the 10K. That's not enough, but it's enough to be, uh, get me potentially interested. I might pull that 10K um, because it just looks dirt cheap. Oh, fraudsters. All right. So let's hear your rant about how you're the world's greatest semiconductor inventor, please. <laughs> Investor. <laughs> and inventor as well. No, I this this is actually not even about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm you know I hold Nvidia, hodl, love it, great. Nvidia is great. Uh, so, but there was one day this past week, Nvidia was up about twelve percent. So I went. So Nvidia announces earnings in the next couple of weeks. Like they didn't do that, and so I'm just yeah. I'm like, what the like? I'm getting alerts right on my phone that are saying like Nvidia is up five percent. Nvidia is up ten percent. I was like, what in the heck is? I'm happy about this. But what the yeah. heck is going on? Right. 
because uh, they haven't announced earnings or anything. And it just turns out that what we talked about before, the metaverse, like people are basically saying like NVIDIA is all up in the metaverse. And so <laughs> therefore it's up 12% in a day. What? <laughs> and I, I think I, I sent you a, a, a text. I was just like, I'm really happy that NVIDIA yeah. is up 12% in a day. And I am befuddled, saddened. <laughs> I don't even know what to feel an emotion around the fact that it's because of the metaverse is why NVIDIA is up 12% today. You can't make sense of these hyenas out in bubble no. land, man. I mean, if they're not grabbing some crypto, they're grabbing some metaverse stocks. <laughs> Did you it's see... Saw this on maybe some late night show or something. There's a computer company called Meta and like a small independent uh, manufacturer. And of course, their business is destroyed by Facebook's announcement. So <laughs> they did like a little video of how they decided to change their name. And we're like, and our new name to represent our core values is Facebook. <laughs> <It's> hilarious. <laughs> That's, I love that. Oh, all right. I'm going to reach into the fishbowl here and uh, talk about the opposite of things that are going up, which for the record, things that are going down is, is yep. the opposite there. And this is uh, Zillow. And, you know, I'm in the Pacific Northwest right now. So how, how fitting, right? They're oh, going to discuss Zillow. I'm excited about this. <clears throat> so uh, for those that have not been following Zillow's stock, since the March 2020 bottom, so March 2020 through February-ish of 2021, Zillow was up roughly 6x. Um, actually, no, I think it was 7x. It was up like 600%. Um, so it got to a little over $200 per share. Recently, Zillow closed at about $66 per share. So it's down about two-thirds since earlier this year. And it lost one-third of its stock price in the last week alone. So what is going on is the question. Um, I'm going to give a couple, a couple hits and then uh, love to get your reaction to that. Uh, so Zillow has been part of the iBuying extravaganza which are organizations that are algorithmically buying and selling houses. Uh, Skippy has brought up here before how institutional investors are, have been getting much more aggressively into the real estate game as well. Yeah. And so what happened is uh, through their iBuying platform, Zillow offers, Zillow has basically just been losing money and is shutting it down. And so they announced earnings and said it lost almost like $330 million in the third quarter, which is significantly lower than the $40 million in profit they had about a year ago. And they're winding down Zillow offers and reducing their staff by 25%, which they have 8,000 people. That's yeah. 2,000 people, right? Um, yeah. And so anyway, so they announced that Zillow's getting hit. I'll pause for your reaction here. Well, uh, my take is this hit is almost entirely related to the fact that the Zillow offers and the iBuying um, isn't going as planned. Is that your read on the situation too, in terms of the uh, staff reduction. Yeah. And there was this article I read, which I, I liked in Fast Company called How Phoenix Predicted Zillow's Spectacular Crash. Yeah. And what it what it spelled out is Phoenix is has been this incredibly aggressively growing market over the last five or so years. And because they Phoenix got hit so hard in 2008. I mean, many real estate markets got hit in 2008, obviously. But over the past five years, it's been coming back with a vengeance. And Zillow has been has been paying 10 to 20%, apparently, according to this article, on average, over asking price, which is what's happening in the market generally, right, broadly. But when you have an algorithm that basically says, systematically, pay 20% above asking in an aggressive growing market, at some point, you're going to get bit. 
right? I mean, it, it's just it's kind of the way that it is. There was a real estate agent that was mentioned in this article that said that they logged on to their MLS, which is the system that uh, the portal that real estate agents use to see where, what the listings are. And it showed that the iBuying company, so like Zillow, Open Door, Offerpad, owned 12 to 14% of the Phoenix market. That's crazy. So when they first went to Zillow Offers, I think they call it, I was really intrigued. I'm, I'm just fascinated with the real estate space generally. And I, my main wonder was where they got all that capital because they were buying houses like crazy. And then I really liked the innovation that was happening, but I was skeptical of it. I, I didn't think it would end like this. I did not think it would end this uh, poorly. I read a breakdown this week that did some simple math that I think is really good. And basically it says, even if Zillow's algorithm is incredible, like even if on average it's as good or maybe even better than your typical real estate agent who who doesn't have those that data prowess, the thing that Zillow doesn't have and will never have is like the 30 years experience in these communities and the understanding that this house in this neighborhood is worth 20% less simply because of the way the lot is adjacent to maybe it's a busy road or maybe it's uh, some sort of noise or whatever. Like there's just not this institutional knowledge, I'll call it, which is probably the wrong term of an actual real estate agent who has sold three houses on that cul-de-sac, you know, like it's just not the same. The algorithm is never going to get there. And I say that as someone who like works in analytics and data science and, and thinks that this stuff can, can be great. So you really really don't think algorithms could get there. It depends on what inputs you put into the model, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, um, I, no, I agree. I think when you're being this greedy, you don't, you don't, you don't get there. But I, but I, I mean, I, I think that being able to put in some level of nuance in that would make sense to me. I might be wrong, but it doesn't seem that's No, so, me. I mean, who knows what 10, 20 years looks like, um, but you have to capture that data in the model. And I could be wrong. I don't think Zillow currently captures some of the nuance that's important to home values just yet. And I'd equate that to there's some timeless advice when people are looking at a college or even buying a house. It's like you need to step foot on campus or you need to tour the home, you know, like because the sometimes the vibe you get from a place in a home for me could have changed the value by 10%. Like I could walk in the front door and it could feel livable and homey and warm and uh, light and all these things. And Zillow's model by design, I think says, oh, well, this is 3000 square feet and this next one's 3000 square feet. And it can't quantify that this one feels comfortable and homey and like a place where you could host Thanksgiving dinner. That's my whole point. And so this breakdown again, basically says, so all that happened to Zillow is anytime the real estate agent had a Zillow offer on the table and they knew that there was some quirks with that house that wasn't being quantified in the model, they sold to Zillow. They were like, by all means. When there was more to it, and it felt like a place you could host Thanksgiving dinner, they sold for 20% more than Zillow was going to offer. And so the people on the ground actually optimized the Zillow model to make it so it was going to be a loss-generating measure for them. I, I don't know if it's true or not, but I like the hypothesis. Yeah, the hypothesis. It actually makes, that does make a lot of sense. I'm going to say what we know just based on you know hindsight 2020 is that their algorithms were basically just there to 
to pick yeah. up properties. I mean, it was a yeah. it was a pure volume game, and they weren't they were not playing those intricacies. It mentioned that they're trying to offload seven thousand houses for nearly three billion dollars to institutional investors. Yeah, and it's Reed BlackRock again, right? Probably institutional <laughs> investors, yeah. aka BlackRock. It's fascinating. I feel like this is one where you innovate and try and break stuff, and it doesn't always work out. I do feel like they've made people more aware of the iBind experience, and I do think the iBind experience will probably catch on. You know me; I'm just so conservative that. I'd be happy to run Zillow and have an iBuying arm, but I'd be offering 20% below what I thought fair value was <laughs> and seeing who's dumb enough to take it. You know, like I, I would yeah. I would never yeah. be offering 20% above what fair market value was because there's so much risk that comes with that. Yeah, you'd be looking at the properties that no one else would want to pick up but have like strong. And it's like it's a little bit of like the twist on what you were describing earlier. Be like, what are the properties that you could end up making into something that is going to be great? But like, but the market currently isn't seeing that. That's what you'd be picking up. You yeah, and gosh, the darn fast company investing. article you read. Was there any um, mention? Because I saw some chatter, and I'm not sure how true it was. That another thing they really struggled with was um, basically contractors on the ground spending the what they claim is the average of six thousand dollars per house to take it to get it ready to sell. And that that operation, like the project management and stuff associated with that was also really challenging. Did you hear any buzz around that? Uh, no, I haven't. Okay. I know we have at least a few, but we probably have more um, like really bright listeners who are experts in real estate. So if I stuck my foot in my mouth, I mean, Dougal's would never stick his f- foot in his mouth, right? He's. Perfect. I like sticking my foot in your mouth, though. But uh, hit us up if we misspoke on anything here. It's fascinating stuff, and uh, we'd love your expertise. So, yeah, Zillow's fun, man. Crazy stuff. Um, According (laughs) to Mark Cuban and civicscience.com, 4% of people in the USA have quit their job because of crypto gains. Could this possibly be true? Uh, Yes, I think it it can be. (laughs) Because how many times are we going to cover stuff about people doing weird things with their jobs right now like we there was a we talked i don't know if this actually ended up making on the pod but we talked a few weeks ago about people having multiple jobs and how they manage that we've talked about why people the the great resignation and why people are leaving it's not surprising but just please don't just please don't (laughs) well so i want to talk about both sides of this issue and we'll move to more interesting things uh and according to this article the vast majority of those gains are less than 50k so not life-changing money i mean i understand if it's 5 million or whatever that you might just be like i'm done with this but so yes i think the large majority of me is with you like please don't just just ride it out um if you got the investing bug that's really fun um but the flip side that i think could be kind of cool is this could be like the gateway drug to understanding that you can generate money while you sleep, which is an important thing for a lot of people to learn, which could ultimately create like this desire for change, you know, to say, whatever my job is now, I can do better than this. And so you're quitting to climb the ladder to learn more. I don't know. Maybe there's a positive there. No, no, don't you. Too much optimism in, in humanity with this one, no, I would say. No. This is just bad. Like, please don't, people. Please don't. We got to, to uh, tag on to the cryptocurrency piece. 
Uh, so Eric Adams was just elected mayor of New York. Great. You know, celebrate. Fantastic. Yeah. You won this election. He comes out and he says, I'm going to get my first three paychecks in Bitcoin, mm -hmm. which he wants to do because somehow this one act is going to make New York, and I quote, the center of the cryptocurrency industry. But he, the emphasis there was on three paychecks because that's three times better than what the Miami mayor said. Yeah. <laughs> Who's kidding? When he got one paycheck. Yeah, he got one paycheck. <laughs> oh, so we got people quitting their jobs because of cryptocurrency. We got people <laughs> getting their jobs because of cryptocurrency. I have no I just... problem with this. It's a it's a marketing gimmick, and there are jobs to be had in crypto right now. I don't know if there will be jobs to be had in crypto in five years, but there are right now. And his job as mayor of NYC is to try and make it an attractive place. So you know how many people wrote articles about this nonsense? Because he either doesn't need the money, in which case he's going to sit in crypto for a while, or he's going to immediately could convert the Bitcoin to dollars so he could buy his groceries. Like, it... It's a total gimmick. Like, okay. <laughs> just, I can't. No, I know. You're I know. Kind of a bad, bad mood today. No, I can't just, get behind no, this. I will not. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! All right, so I'm gonna reach in for some just great writing. I really enjoy Morgan Housel, my boy Morgan. He, we should get him on the show. No, that that's actually it. yeah. That's a, it's phenomenal, uh, phenomenal idea, and. For those that have not read this, I highly recommend a book called The Psychology of Money that Morgan wrote. Was that last year, two years ago? I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, 2020. I think yeah. it's like spring 2020. Yeah, good stuff. Um, so this article that Morgan came out with in the, sometime in the last couple of weeks, it's called The Same Stories Again and Again. Um, this is on uh, collaborativefund.com. The three points that he makes here. So the broad point is basically like history repeats itself. Um, and he he brings up some lessons for um, that he's seen in history repeating themselves when it comes to economics. That's the the broad theme of this article. And the three points that he brings up, and I'll go back to them after I state all three, is the first is no one knows how they'll respond to risk and setback until they're in the moment of terror. The second is declines occur because many people's entire goal is to become so successful that they can relax. And relaxing leads to complacency that breeds decline. And the third is innovation is hard to predict and easy to underestimate because so much occurs by accident when several boring discoveries compound into something extraordinary. I think really, really fascinating. So uh, to go back to them. So the first, no one knows how they'll respond to risk and setback until they're in the moment of terror. We talked about this a bunch when it comes to measuring or managing your own psychology when it comes to investing. So we've talked a good amount about this, but it's basically like in, until you're in the crucible, right? Like you never really know what's going to happen. Uh, one of the, one thing I I loved so at that, that point uh, I think makes a lot of sense. One thing uh, a quote I loved that he pulled out in here he said, uh, "Bill Seidman, who used to run the FDIC, said, you never know what the American public is going to do, but you know that they will do it all at once.' <laughs> <laughs> I love how, how real is that? That's how uh, Tesla's market cap goes up like three hundred <laughs> no. billion in a week. I mean, like." Exactly. And that's why the, the panic on the downside of this is going to be fun. This is where I love the like automated investor services that figure out your asset allocation with like 10 questions. And it's like, 
Yep. If your stocks were down 25%, w- would you buy more? Would you hold or would you sell? And it's like, yeah, answering that question is the same as being like, oh, I just watched $50,000 evaporate and my kids are going to college next year. It's just totally mm-hmm. not even in the same league. Yeah, no, I know. When you're, when you're in it, it feels very different, right? You're not yeah. thinking purely clearly. You're not looking at, well, what should I do? right? It's, it's, that's not the world you're thinking, as you mentioned, it's like, you're thinking about your rent, your mortgage, your kids college next year. Like that's the stuff you're thinking about. It's kind of a, when I, um, uh, the poker table, right. Which I brought up before. I think that one, I will say, I believe that playing poker like relates so much to business investing and everything, just the psychology of it, I think is, uh, is part of it that I love. But when you're sitting at the table, if you think about the chips as money, it changes everything, right? Because you, you, you can't think, you know, there's X amount of dollars in the middle. So what do I, what do I do? You have to, I, in my opinion, you have to go to like, they're just chips and like what makes sense, but that's hard to do. It's really hard to do when, when you're in the moment. So I think I love that quote. And that's the first great point. The second one declines occur because many people's entire goal is to become so successful. They can relax. And then relaxing leads to complacency that breeds decline. Um, so this is basically saying um, that when you get to the point of success and then you're like, let's celebrate, right? Um, it implies that you're at the end game. And if you're at the end game, then why keep trying, right? Is, is basically saying that if you stop trying, then you're not successful. He brings up this, uh, it's a really cool little profile of a marathon runner um, who, who basically is saying that- uh, Yeah, that they, Kip Chogi. But yeah. before the pod, can we call him Skip Chogi? I want to channel, you missed my joke. Come on. I, no, I didn't miss it. <laughs> I didn't miss it. Yeah, we, we can do Kip, that. Kipchoge's a badass. He's an yeah. incredible guy. Sorry, go ahead. Um, so he's saying he never celebrates, right? Uh, and the, the analogy he makes is like, uh, I'm a believer that if you climb to one branch, then you reach for the next branch is like the mentality that uh, Kipchoge has. And one of the the things that Morgan brings up here also is around Chinese restaurants and shutting down in the US and saying that the reason is because people came over to the country to open a Chinese restaurant and cook so that their kids didn't have to. And now their kids aren't right. I mean, effectively, like they've done that thing. They've set up the foundation. But what he wants to what he's bringing up is that when you get to that point, it's so easy to start on the decline if you're not always trying to like the opposite of, of continuous improvement is continuous decline effectively. What do you think about that one? I mean, I don't think it's that black and white. One of the things that Morgan is really good at framing, and and so I think he frames this well. I think there is some merit to it, but I just don't think it's that black and white. And I'm not – I do think you can be allowed to celebrate without immediately hitting that decline. Um, But but I like the general uh, gesture. Yeah, I I think that it's very possible. I I think you're right that it's very possible, but it – what seems most likely this gets back to what you mentioned earlier around people quitting their jobs with cryptocurrency, I think is just, is what happens. Unfortunately, um, a lot of the time is that folks, the recency bias, maybe I'll even call it, um, of success, like has people believe that that is perpetual, right? That it would say, it's so easy for me to make money in Solana that all that I have to do is like next time, find the next Solana if I hit hard yep. times, right? But yep. 
that just doesn't happen very often, right? All I have to do is have Facebook change its name to Meta so that my NVIDIA can go up 12%. You know what I mean? Like, a, that's not the way that... Just do that every day for the rest of your life. You'll be set. Exactly. Yeah, I, what resonates with me, I mean, it's one of the things we ask guests when they come on the show is kind of like, what's your ideal retirement and how different is it from... How different is your life from that today, basically? And... The reason we ask that question is kind of because I'm moving away from this thought of like retiring as, you know, like stopping uh, to a mindset of like trying to find something that you truly enjoy that you can do for the rest of your life. Because to Morgan's point here, I think that allows you to continuously be like climbing the challenge um, really for the rest of your life rather than be like, oh, I hit the finish line and now. I'm not doing that anymore, which leads to an inevitable decline. Yeah. So there's some way to frame it. In the yeah, I think that I think I think that's right. I think it's right. It's the 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 point that he brings around uh, relaxation leads to complacency, leads to decline. Is how do you stop that complacency? Because th that's the yeah. that's the point. But I I love the way that you frame that around. It's not getting when you say relax. It's just it's more like freedom. Right. It's more like it's just like a like the liberation that we discussed last time with regard to black Bitcoin. Right. It's feeling like you have agency and control, yes. which is which does not have to be complacency. Yeah. And optionality to be like, yeah. you know what? Today I want to do X. I'm still climbing the mountain, but I'm not I'm not like I don't have to report to this uh, incredibly rigid job at 715 in the morning and work my exactly eight hours. You know, like just more optionality so i hear you the third one innovation is hard to predict and easy to underestimate because so much occurs by accident when several boring discoveries compounded to something extraordinary the the one little word i don't like in here is accident because yeah. i think uh what what he's really talking about is serendipity almost which i guess maybe you can say they're the same thing but it's like it's it's unpredictable connections between two things right um is is mm -hmm. mostly what he's talking about and so an example he gives is he said, Google Maps, TurboTax, and Instagram wouldn't be possible without ARPANET, a 1960s Department of Defense project linking computers to manage Cold War secrets that became the foundation for the internet, right? It's like, it's that kind of stuff. I love what he, little anecdote he brings up in here with regard to Thomas Edison. Uh, Edison, the quote unquote inventor of the light bulb, actually didn't invent like the light bulb, invented the light bulb as we know it today, but it was a, like a, a nearly a century before someone invented the first capability for a thing to emit light but it was incredibly bright and burned out in like a minute and so what yeah. edison did was tinkered with the thing until it was something that you could use effectively um and so but there's this little anecdote in here talking about edison where someone was interviewing him in the early 20th century and asked uh if he thought that the age of invention was passing and edison the way the way that he frames this in here, I can only picture Edison being like, you know, like, you know, someone's so befuddled, but he says passing because why it hasn't started yet. That ought to answer your question. Do you want anything else? Is what he said. And basically, Edison's like, we, we ju we're just getting started. They, they, they said, along what lines do you expect this development to continue? And he said, along all lines. Right. And what a <laughs> yeah, so Edison is just he was he was over it. Um, but anyway. But yeah, it's, it's just kind of like the point that there are these, it's all about continuous improvement. It's all about tinkering and you just never know what's going to lead to the next big thing. I really like this from the investing mentality 
because it's about compounding, right? William Green hit the hit on this so amazingly in like mm-hmm. many different ways, but the the compounding is so important. And one of the one of the reasons why like purely sitting in cash is not a good idea uh, many times is that there are a select few days that make a year that make yeah. a market that could make your portfolio yeah. and you never know what days those are going to be right and if you miss that day it you know like let's just say let's say nvidia ends up being i'm just using this because we brought it up right ends up being like this great holding in my portfolio already is just throwing it out but anyway but if it <laughs> if it ends up doing that and we're like if for whatever reason i didn't hold it like on tuesday like whatever day that was this week like it it changes everything right um and yeah. so it's about compounding you have to be you have to be in it so all right i love this article. well no but think about that though so one day this week went up 12 percent. let's just make up some random numbers like let's say it's up 20 percent for the year like that yeah. one day was more than half the return and then let's say you hold the thing for five more years and it does i don't know 10 percent each year um, you know how much that 12% that happened at the beginning of your holding period compounds over time? It's going to end up being like, I mean, we could do the math, but it might end up being like 30% of your return came from holding uh, the stock on that one day. It's important to be in the market. And that's, I think that's one of the fundamental things you need to understand. And then when you understand that, you got to figure out how that works for you. The way it works for me to be in the market is to not hold expensive stuff. Because if I'm holding Tesla right now, I don't sleep well at night because I know the crash is coming. I just don't know when it is. But if I'm holding the dirt cheap Volkswagens of the world, which I do not hold, but as an example, I go, hey, it's priced a cash flow of five, like, you know, like with minimal debt and below book value. Like, what's the what's the downside here? It's probably pretty minimal. I, I love seeing the way your eyes light up when you say things like minimal debt. Like you, you, you get so just like, gets fired up, man. <laughs> yeah, no, I, uh, yeah, that, I, that, that, that's, that's it. Right. And more importantly than the specifics of what you just named is the, the ties we always mention to your own psychology and what does make you, what makes you stay in. Right. I own a pretty concentrated portfolio of really expensive stuff yep. and that, that makes me sleep well at night. Right. Um, and so it, it's different, but what's important is what does keep you in. Um, that that that's the important part and understanding that for yourself. We who what article or post was that recently that we covered? I feel like it might have been of dollars and data that was talking about uh, what was it like invest, invest, and stop, or it was something like that, right? We were yeah, saying it like was it's important to be some, involved early. Well, like, regardless, go hard but, and then stop, or something. yeah, 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 something like that. It's it's to the same point that you just brought up, where if you look at somebody that starts investing when they're twenty versus somebody that starts investing when they're thirty, right? And how much of the twenty-year-olds' gains actually come from when they were twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two? By the end, because yeah. of how long they've had to compound, it's it's enormous compounding. It's, it's a real thing. Yeah, it's monumental for sure. But the twenty-year-old is also trying to do things that the thirty-year-old might not be, like save for a house. Or yeah. buy his girlfriend an engagement ring. I mean, like the time value of money is a real thing. And some of those, I bet I mentioned it at the time, but some of those just spreadsheets don't really account for real life in terms of how you have to build a foundation in your younger years. That's true. What else is in the fishbowl for you? Um, I think that is my fishbowl. I got one quiz on the way out. And then don't worry it's not related to pizza although i think i'm going to bring a pizza quiz back uh, by popular demand 
So I know you're not a huge sports guy, but I've been shocked at the the craziness of crowds associated to college sports recently. Basically, this year, um, already, I think it's six or seven now. It used to be five. College coaches have been fired midseason, and mm-hmm. I'm talking largely about football here. And this is the impatience of um, college donors and alumni, and it's just gotten out of control recently. The ultimate question here is the way coaching contracts work is they're almost always guaranteed and they're guaranteed because when you're trying to get the coach to come to your school, you have to throw this ridiculous offer at him because there's other schools. If he's a hot name that want him to come. So you sign a five-year deal that's fully guaranteed. And then what happens is the donors get impatient and in year three, you fire the guy, which means you still have to pay out the rest of his contract. If you look at what happened in the last 11 years in terms of coaching firings, any guesses for how many millions of dollars are out there with what's called dead money, which is paying coaching staffs to not coach your team? I don't even want to know. I do that. Please tell me. Half a billion dollars. Oh, my. Are you kidding? Half a billion dollars. Yes. These are the in in many cases, the world's most elite. uh, I mean, it's not necessarily Ivy League, but. Everything that's not Ivy League in terms of universities has spent half a billion dollars paying athletic coaches. Again, it's almost always football, men's basketball, and women's basketball that is to not control. coach their teams. Who who was that? It was like Bobby Bonilla or somebody who's like... It is. Uh, if you're talking baseball, Bobby Bonilla signed a contract in like 1999 where one of the stipulations was it'd pay him a million dollars uh, for the next like 35 years. So he got like whatever his $10 million salary during the year, but then they deferred a lot of money, I think for salary cap reasons or something else. And so, yeah, why can't more, that's a different subject Eagles, but why don't more pro athletes do that? Because, um, no one's great with money, especially when maybe you're an NBA star and you went to six months worth of college and that just, you know, wasn't, necessarily something that you had a chance to build your financial literacy just sign a contract that says pay me a million dollars for the next 75 years on july 1st and who's gonna be upset with that down the road on iverson wouldn't be that's her dagnab sure (laughs) talk talk about managing your money well anyway i digress that's a going back to what you originally brought up that is a fascinating stat and it is that's mind-blowing 500 million dollars yeah, I mean, you know, I love this stuff. So there's a the value investor pitch on this marketplace, I'd call it, is that if you can find a way to have longevity with your coaching staff, it can actually be a massive competitive advantage. Because every time you fire the coach, you get caught in that next hiring cycle. And that next hiring cycle, uh, because of the impatience in this space, gets hotter and hotter and you overpay more and more. I mean, coaching salaries are growing. Uh, this is an estimate. I don't know at 20 to 30% per year rather than. So when we talk about inflation of 5%, like that's not even happening. You have coordinators making 2 million bucks in certain places. Like the money is just outrageous. It, it kind of pisses me off though. A half a billion dollars could be used for such better things. Even if really anything else, like <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> like write a contract that says if we fire you we'll still pay your salary but we're, we're gonna feed the homeless instead of 
pay a coach that's already worth 20 million bucks. Oh my goodness. All right. I think that's a wrap, right? So as always, you can reach us at Skippy Dougals on Twitter, skippydougals at gmail.com. And we've got the Substack if you're into reading. That is skippyanddougals.substack.com. Check it out. Thanks, guys.